Iowa City, home to the University of Iowa and the college town to end all college towns, is one of the great gems of the prairie states. Here for Big Ten football, there's a specially decked out train that'll take you right to the stadium. Here for arts and culture, there's live music everywhere. And next year, the university's art museum will rise from the ashes more than a decade after it was damaged by a catastrophic flood. Here for literature, the Midwest's greatest bookstore, Prairie Lights, is here. And this was the first city of literature recognized by UNESCO in the U.S. And of course, there are fossils here, too. Though when you wander into the university's Museum of Natural History, what you'll probably notice first are the dioramas of ancient life in Hawkeye Country, especially Rusty the Giant Sloth and the gigantic armored fish Dunkleosteus, cruising menacingly, if also a little goofily, above a colorful Devonian reef. Across from this giant are some fossils that may not be quite as flashy at first glance, but that tell an incredible story. They're fossils of trees, mostly trunks, but including a few leaves as well. A little time studying them will reward you with several important insights. Their age is a big deal. At a bit over 300 million years old, these trees grew in what were some of the world's first forests. We call the period in which they lived the Carboniferous, meaning coal-bearing, because it's the carbon-rich remains of trees like these that form the world's great coal deposits. These ancient environments have long been known as coal forests, and walking through them would have been a very different experience than walking through any forest that we know today. If you look closely at the trunks on display in the museum, you'll see that most have a scaly appearance, while some others have long striations running along them. You can see these same patterns in two living groups of plants, the scales and club mosses, the striations and horsetails, which shows us that these plants are close relatives of the trees that dominated the coal forests. But club mosses today are tiny, growing to just a few inches high, while horsetails top out at a few feet at most. In the Carboniferous, they're recently evolved vascular systems that allowed them to efficiently transport water from their roots to their leaves made it possible for them to grow to gigantic sizes. Modern trees mostly carry out the process of photosynthesis, the chemical reaction that allows them to gather energy from the sun, in their leaves, which they pack with the pigment chlorophyll that makes all of this possible. And that's what gives their leaves their green color. Club mosses and horsetails, though, use their entire bodies to photosynthesize, meaning that they're green all over. Assuming their ancient relatives followed suit, walking through a coal forest would have been like strolling through the Emerald City, surrounded by towering structures, green all the way from the ground up to the highest branches. When a plant photosynthesizes, it draws carbon dioxide, familiar today as a greenhouse gas that causes global warming, out of the atmosphere, replacing it with oxygen. So widespread and efficient were the plants of the coal forest that they actually changed Earth's climate sucking up huge amounts of carbon and cooling the planet by several degrees. The oxygen they emitted had major consequences too. This was a golden age for insects and their relatives, which require oxygen just like us, but breathe it in a very different way. Unlike us, insects don't have lungs, which means that they rely on air passively diffusing into their blood. If they get too big, the surface area required for breathing becomes too small relative to the size of the insect, and it can't survive. In the oxygen-rich Carboniferous, though, this was less of a limitation, and the world saw the evolution of dragonflies the size of seagulls, among many other outsized insects. You can see the one that reliably elicits the most disgusted reaction in the museum's diorama, 
where enormous cockroaches scuttle up the trunk of a huge club moss. But it wasn't just insects that benefited from life in the coal forests. This was also when our first egg-laying, land-dwelling reptilian ancestors evolved, and at sites in Nova Scotia, we often find these lizard-like animals preserved in the trunks of coal forest trees. These small fragments of what were once giant club mosses and horsetails, then, record one of the most important transitions in Earth history, one where many aspects of biology came together to very literally change the face of the planet. The evolutionary innovations that allowed plants to grow large led to not only an explosion in plant diversity, but to a completely new environment, my favorite environment, forests. Those forests themselves changed the composition of the atmosphere and cooled global temperature, paving the way for a flourishing of insect diversity and providing the backdrop for our vertebrate ancestors' last big step onto land. Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orkut, and on this episode, we're doing something a little different. October 13th is National Fossil Day, a celebration organized by the U.S. National Park Service to recognize our country's, and increasingly our world's, fossil heritage. It'll come as no surprise to any of you that I move in circles in which nerding out over cool and fascinating fossils is pretty much the norm, and I wanted to share a bit of the joy we find in reveling in the fossil record with you. What follows are a series of short descriptions of fossils that have been on the brains of my friends and I lately, that will hopefully get you as excited about National Fossil Day as we are. Some of the voices may be familiar from earlier episodes, but some are new to the show. So without further ado, let's jump right in and have them introduce themselves, the fossils they love, and the stories they tell. My name is Nick Weldon. I'm a geologist and I live in Claremont, California. My favorite period of time as far as fossils go is probably the Cambrian. And my favorite Cambrian fossil of them all are the uh, anomalocarids, um, the gigantic apex predator of the shallow Cambrian reefs. And really, actually the whole Radiodonta generally is pretty cool. With their character characteristically graceful, um, segmented lobed, sort of eel or ray looking body, insect-like compound eyes, two mantis-like arms and a scary circular jaw. It's sort of like a shark or orca sea bug equivalent of the Cambrian reef. So I just think it's an incredibly charismatic animal that shows what else is possible for Earth's aquatic ecosystems. And I think it's also quite mysterious. They're clearly related to modern arthropods, but nothing today really looks much like them. So um, they're actually um, quite beautiful and rather alien looking, in my opinion. They're extremely alien looking. I would agree with you on that one. And I, I'm sure someone who works on early animals would be able to, to give me the current thinking on this. But as far as I understand it, they're the first like big predators in the history of life, which is just so cool so they probably had an outsized impact on 
and all the ecosystems that they lived in. And that, and sitting here in the inland northwest, uh, we're they're especially relevant locally because they're from the well, they were found first at least at the Burgess Shale locality in British Columbia, just just up across the border from from where I'm sitting now in Spokane. So. I know I've seen bits and pieces of them, I feel, I think in like the Terrell Museum in Alberta. Uh, but anywhere that has a big Burgess Shale collection, I think, has some odds and ends. They almost always find them in little bits and pieces. They didn't even realize they were all from the same animal for like several decades and after it was first described, I think. But yeah. Yeah, they thought the melt things were like headless shrimp. Yeah, they thought the they thought the appendages at the front of the head were shrimp. They do kind of look shrimp-like. That's where the name comes from because it means weird shrimp. They thought the mouth, which is circular, was a, a jellyfish. Yeah, it's it was uh, a jellyfish. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember. I can't remember that as well. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember what else the the other. I thought the other pieces were, um, and it wasn't until like, God, not that long ago that they actually found a relatively complete one and realized this thing they've been calling like five different animals was actually a single organism. <laughs> Just so cool, and then they found, like you were saying, there's a whole group of these things, and they found them all over the world in Cambrian deposits. It's ah, oh, they're so cool. Yeah, one of my coworkers just had one named after him because he's done a bunch of work with like Burgess Shale stuff, and they named one of the new anomalocarids that's for the Cambrian really, really big. It's really extra dumb looking though, because instead of being sort of like pancake with bits and pieces coming off of it, it's like an upside down like taco. <laughs> Weird. Yeah, uh, I think yeah, clearly they're much more diverse than we um, originally thought they were. Um, I, when I first learned about them, I think we really just knew about the one from the Burgess Shale, and then they found some at Shenzhen and China, and sounds like all over the world now, which is ah, oh, there's yeah, they're so cool. Hi, I'm Dr. Wynne McLaughlin. I'm a visiting professor at Pomona College in Southern California. And my pick for uh, sort of favorite fossil of this exact moment is the Tully monster. And for me, what I really love about the Tully monster, despite being somebody that works on late Cenozoic mammals for my own research, is that it sort of really highlights how much we still have to study and, and discover. So this is a organism that's found in uh, the Mason Creek out of Illinois, primarily. So it's late Paleozoic. It's an area that forms all these beautiful kind of nodule fossils known for ferns, lots of sort of plants and things like that, and occasionally sort of aquatic animals. This thing called the Tully monster, named after the guy who discovered it, uh, I think his name was Edward Tully, but uh, it's sort of looks like a hot dog with some like maybe fins on the sides and little holes along the sides. And then the front end, presumably the front end, has like a noodle with snippy snap claw things sticking off of it. And then it's got like a bar across the front of the head with little eyeball-y things. So it, it looks totally, utterly alien. And this sort of characteristics of it physically, which is, you know, all we have left in a fossil, uh, sort of is defied paleontologists for decades of figuring out what this organism is. And in various paleontology textbooks that I 
you know, studied as a student and then have taught my students out of every single time a new one's published, it's like, oh, it's, it's this, we've solved what the Tully monster is. And then somebody looks at a new specimen in a museum or looks at it under uh, like fluorescent light, some of the latest studies, and seems to come up with like another disagreeing idea. Uh, I sort of fall into the camp of, I kind of agree with the folks that think it's maybe some sort of very basal weird fish that kind of was a leftover from earlier attempts at being fish, but I don't think it's really set in stone exactly what it is. Uh, you know, again, it's got these kind of characteristics that seem to match up with a lot of different organisms. The, the weird eye stalks and some of the sort of structure of the body have made various people suggest it might be a mollusk, so something related to snails or even cephalopods, but the little sort of holes along the side of the body look similar to those in like lampreys and hagfish, so maybe some sort of little side spherical breathing in a jawless fish. The part that I keep coming back to is what the heck is the little noodle with snippy snap arms on the head of it? Presumably head again. But I just think it's a really cool sort of mystery of how much more we have to do in paleontology. And kind of right before the pandemic uh, really took off, early 2020, I got to see the type specimen of it at Chicago, which is just gorgeous. It's sort of bigger than I expected. It's almost a foot long. And it's pretty amazing. You can see sort of color and detail and all of this soft tissue preservation. And so none of these weird, bizarre structures in this organism are, you know, made up or interpreted. They're very clearly there, which just makes it all the more a mystery of like, if this even is a fish, how does it move? What does it eat? How does it eat? What is it eating? It's a mystery. Yeah, and a, a really weird one, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I have to point, since we've had an episode in the past on, on state fossils and state dinosaurs, I have to point out it's the state fossil of Illinois, uh, since that's pretty much exclusively where it's found. Uh, and yeah, it's, sorry. it's only known from Mason Creek, from what I understand, Yep. but it's not an uncommon fossil within Mason Creek. I mean, when I got to see the type specimen, that one's in a you know special case, but there were multiple drawers of solid Tully monsters at the Field Museum, and the Burpee Museum also had over a dozen specimens of the Tully monster, so there's quite a few. It had stripes, it, you know, we have all the different little bits and pieces, but still no clue what it is. Yeah, when they when they did the big renovation of the fossil halls at the Field Museum, I remember going there, and I'd, I'd always thought exactly the same thing. I thought, this thing is so, like, weird and poorly understood, it must mean that we have, like, a handful of specimens, and they're all in bad shape. But no, they're in great shape, and there's just a whole bunch of them, mostly in the Field Museum in Chicago, um, which is definitely the best place to go to see it. Um, but yeah, it's I, I love that we know so much about it, and everything we learn just makes it more confusing. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Sarah Bullock-Dorn. I am a not paleontologist in eastern Washington. I work in health nonprofit, actually. 
Um, but I do have a favorite fossil and it comes from me growing up in Kansas. Uh, when I was a kid, um, the Sternberg Museum of Natural History opened up and we went there, I think both for family trip and field trips different times. But um, I very specifically remember walking into that museum and you see the big fish within a fish, which is actually how it's labeled in the museum. You have to get really up close to see its little Latin name, but there's a huge fish within a fish sign there. And I couldn't date whether I knew Kansas was previously underwater to that experience, but I definitely remember um, that being kind of a, oh, this is, this is what it means that we were, that what I thought was boring old Kansas growing up was actually once under a sea. And, um, and then learning that it wasn't an ocean the way I thought about an ocean, but you know, measured depth in hundreds of feet instead of thousands of feet and just a really interesting period that then kind of shapes the current um, geography of it. And you can actually kind of see the Smoky Hills. So I, I grew up in Wichita, Kansas. And so you have to drive a little north and then a little west to get to Hayes, where the Sternberg Museum is. And you actually drive through the Smoky Hills and can see some of the um, Cretaceous era, um, where the actual chalk and, and sandstone and limestone is, where these fossils came out of, um, and, and visit some of the, the places there. Um, so I just remember this being a, a really cool experience as a kid and it still sticks out to me um as a kid who played like pretended to be dinosaurs in kindergarten like that was one of the things we played but we definitely didn't play aquatic dinosaurs and then years later to go to the museum and be like oh this these are our dinosaurs they're they're huge and they're underwater and this one in particular is a giant fish with another giant fish inside of it yeah and in fact i would add a lot i would say and I guess I am a little biased here, given what I work on. But I think this is out, the fossils that come out of Kansas are way more interesting than almost any dinosaur. <laughs> like the uh, giant marine reptiles. This this fish within a fish is massive. Like I've I've only it's seen some like thirteen or fourteen it. feet across. Yeah. it's um, it's huge. And the fish inside it is not tiny. No, it's, it's a seven foot fish inside this thirteen foot fish. Yeah, it's like a um, the one that got eaten is like big king salmon size for. I think it'd be a good sort of frame of reference for anyone listening from the Northwest. But uh, yeah, and I love it because there's two sort of mind-blowing things about it if you're not sort of already immersed in the fossil record. And what one is just the fact that we can get a moment like that preserved in the fossil record. Uh, it actually happens more than once with that particular type of fish. Um, there's a couple other specimens out there that also seem to have died in the process of eating another fish. Um but yeah, like you said, most people would never even like think to to put Kansas and shallow tropical oceans together. Um, and, and yet, yeah, the reason Kansas looks the way it does today is that it was, you know, a lot of that is sediments from this, this shallow ancient seabed. Uh, and the fossils there just are so gorgeous. They just really, really drive it home and make you, you know, it, when you look at these things, it looks like you saw something that just sort of died and settled to the seabed like yesterday. They're perfectly preserved in a lot of cases and i think that really just helps yeah. underscore it yeah and there's a link if all the way from you know that period all the way into modern sports if you watch college basketball and you hear the jayhawk chant rock chalk jayhawk that's in reference to the smoky hills and the uh, the chalk 
that's the sediment from nice. that. Nice. I had never put that together, but it makes perfect sense. Yep. <laughs> Hi, my name is Dr. Nick Famoso. I am the paleontology program manager and museum curator at John Day Fossil Beds National Monument in eastern and central Oregon. And the fossil animals that I personally find very interesting and probably helped me find my footing with my career path in, in paleontology are fossil horses. And particularly, I find probably one of the most interesting is uh, this, this genus of horse called Pliohippus. Uh, Pliohippus is a very interesting horse. It's, it's the first one that actually shows evidence of being single-toed, like what we see in modern horses today. And a lot of that horse, like the anatomy of that horse, really does look like a modern, um, a modern horse. It's got eyes like a modern horse. It's got teeth like a modern horse. You know, you, you, it might just be a little bit shorter, but hey, it looks like a modern horse. But what's really cool, uh, particularly... Uh, when you get enough of them together. So a good example of this is um, Ashfall fossil beds in Nebraska, where you got a whole population of these things that were killed off. Um, so you got a herd. And it's interesting because in this particular period of time, this is about 11, 12 million years ago, right, when Pliohippus first shows up, roughly, um, right, they're mostly single-toed. But all the horses that come before it are multi-toed. They're three-toed horses. And this is one of the first ones along a lineage that actually starts to be single-toed. And in that population of horses that you see in this herd in Nebraska, some of the individuals of this species are single-toed, and some of them are tridactyl, meaning they have three toes. So, And you can definitely tell that those two side toes aren't really functional. So this is a point where, like, these toes are just kind of, like, worthless little like wings flopping in the on the side of their feet they're not really using you're not really doing anything with it so the characteristic is what some people call plastic right i mean it's like it doesn't really hurt it to have it doesn't really hurt it to not have it it's like an appendix with people i mean like, that one does kind of hurt you sometimes um <laughs> but i think that one is a really cool animal because it's one of these like places where you can actually see individual variation in the population and kind of capture this like evolutionary progress like as like this is a good snapshot showing like oh there are individuals that obviously were three-toed and then there are individuals that are obviously single-toed and from that point on that genus that species it's not really as variable um but i mean like you'd even see that today right and there's mutations in modern horses that plunk will spit out an extra toe every once in a while it looks a little funky but yeah i mean that that was one of my favorite horses and being able to see like a population of those things in middle of nowhere northeast nebraska i thought it was pretty cool yes and i will jump in and say for anyone who hasn't listened to it nick and i did a whole episode on uh on Ashfall in nebraska and related sites where we ramble on for a very long time about the many uh, amazing fossil localities in nebraska uh but of those yeah Ashfall is absolutely the most incredible and to be able to actually see like a herd of these things 
kind of locked in time is is incredible. Uh, but now before you started your segment here, we had a discussion about um, you had sort of two fossil horses you were you were thinking you might want to talk about. Uh, and rather than choose between them, uh, I, I, I think we should go ahead and uh, delve into the second one because it's just so weird. Uh, it would be a shame not to talk about it. Yes. Um, yeah. So, you know, most of my career, I've been focusing on North American horses. And um, there's a lot of data that's you know been found about North American and European, Asian, African horses. But it turns out that there was a, a species an entire genus that developed in South America um, after the North North and South America reconnected. The um, One of the things that was exchanged in that great biotic interchange was the horse. And one of the species that evolved down in South America is this thing called Hippidion. And Hippidion is a really bizarre horse. Um, because like many things that evolved in South America, including a lot of endemic taxa, um, it's got kind of a, um, a muscular lip bordering on trunk. And it's really kind of bizarre, right? I mean, like, it's the same kind of thing like you see in like with the, with the African rhinos that have a really like prehensile-ish lip, right? It's kind of what this one probably looks like. Um, so I mean, that's really cool that it evolved this. But if you look at the skull, Right. There, there are these like nasal bones that are like, you know, they look normal, like in a normal horse. and They're pretty close to like the incisors and stuff. But in this particular thing in Hippidion, there's this retraction that goes like way back, almost like I think past the eyes right, on the top of the head. It's just like this huge nasal retraction. And it's like it, it's like it's got a little like blade hat thing sitting on top of its head. Right. It's just like this weird, bizarre thing. The structure that's there and what has been determined is that it's something that you normally see in the development of like trunks or like really muscular prehensile lips and things um so i think that's really cool it's just it for me it's probably the most like bizarre looking horse of all like even like the small little ones like i don't really think like like oh they're kind of normalish looking horses because they're like but they're small, whatever. But then, like, this thing is just, like, bleh. <laughs> it's got yeah. this really weird face. And most horses don't do weird stuff with their face. But what exactly they're doing with that trunk, I've heard a lot of hypotheses about that. Um, I've heard everything from, like, stripping the dust from all the ash off the leaves to, like, selectively picking particular blades of grass or whatever. But I think there's a lot of, like, unknowns with this, right? So this is a species of horse that we're, like, we don't really know what it was really doing with that structure. And like, we think we know a lot about horses and we do, but this is one of the groups that were like, uh, not really sure why it's doing that. I mean, we, yeah. could, you know, we could make a lot of guesses, but it's hard to pin down exactly what it was being used for. Yeah. You can, you can see the skulls of these things in person. I know at the museums in, in Paris and, and London and they're, yeah, they're just so bizarre. And I think, we, we think of sort of weird island continents today, right? And we think of Australia and how, how weird all those Australian animals are. If you're, if you're living in the Northern Hemisphere, you think of it that way anyways. Um, but yeah, South America, man, mammal evolution doesn't get much weirder or more isolated than it did on South America. And I love that something as like normal as a horse can show up there and within just a few million years evolve into like a possibly trunked like 
just yeah i agree with you the weirdest looking horse that's ever lived probably like it's it's just bizarre Thanks for joining me in this celebration of National Fossil Day. The stories you just heard are, of course, just a tiny sample of the fossil record. And if you're curious about any fossils that have been found near where you live, there are several resources available. The Paleobiology Database has a visualization tool that allows you to see a map of fossil discoveries across the globe, and it's a great place to start. If your interest gets piqued there and you want to find out more about fossils and the people who study them, there are some great resources on the Park Service's National Fossil Day site. This event will be celebrated in different ways by museums, fossil sites, universities, and even a few zoos and aquariums across the country. So be sure to check the Fossil Day calendar to see if there are any events taking place near you or online. And of course, you can always head over to our website at voyagepod.wordpress.com, which I actually will get around to updating one of these days. You'll find links and background information for all the places we've visited and advice on how to experience them yourself as well as information about the music featured in each episode. And as always, please help me share these destinations and stories with a wider audience by liking, subscribing, rating, reviewing, and telling your friends about the podcast. Happy National Fossil Day, and I hope you'll join me for all the voyages to come.